Bonjour again. On returning from his first Antarctic expedition, Jean-Baptiste Charcot found himself minus one wife, Jean having pressed the divorce in his absence by citing his absence, but plus lots of French kudos. The scientific findings of the voyage of the Francais stood him in good stead with the various French scientific bodies, and a proposal for a second voyage received the stamp of approval of the Académie des Sciences' Quick Smart. The government stumped up 600,000 francs, which Charcot put to use through Pierre Galfier's shipyard. Named after his earlier yacht, itself named after his childhood cardboard box, the Pourquoi Pas, complete with a question mark, resembled the Francais in size and rigging, but weighed substantially more. Three times as much, in fact, due to iron and zinc sheathing, a brand spanking new 550 horsepower engine, a genset to provide a reliable supply of electricity, more and thicker ribs than a ship of that size would normally comprise, and a double-layered hull, providing a watertight backup should the outer hull be breached. Once more, the bulk of the construction used oak, and, as with the Francais, the ship far outstripped the certification requirements of the Bureau Veritas. The 800-ton ship, launched in May 1908, featured three laboratories and crew berths designed for greater comfort than the Francais afforded in the Antarctic conditions. They were roomier, better lit and better heated. Further funds arose from public subscriptions, and several French cities made substantial contributions from their coffers. The Ministry of Marine put three naval officers at Charcot's disposal. First mate, Lieutenant Bongrand, expedition astronomer, hydrographer, seismographer and magnetician, who later became a rear admiral in the French Navy. Second mate, sub-lieutenant Rouche, in charge of meteorology, atmospheric electricity measurements and oceanography who later became director of the Oceanographic Institute of Monaco, and Ensign Godfroy, who took tidal and atmospheric measurements and also later became a rear admiral. The expedition received many gifts from manufacturers eager to capitalise on Charcot's expected further success, and donations of scientific instruments made the Pourquoi Pas the most comprehensively fitted out research vessel to sail south to that date. Charcot procured the best cold weather clothing for his crew, and the scene was set for the French to excel. Between setting the second expedition in motion and its departure, Charcot remarried in early 1907, making his new bride, Marguerite Clary, promise not to stand in the way of his explorations. Their agreement seems to have worked for them, and their marriage sustained until Jean-Baptiste's death. The first of Marguerite and Jean-Baptiste's two daughters was born later that year. A bit of a backtrack. In researching this episode, I found out that Jean-Baptiste Charcot had a daughter by his first marriage, and I also found out that he met his first wife, Jean Hugo, through Charcot's journalist friend, Léon Daudet, Jean's first husband. Heated words at a theatre regarding Jean-Baptiste's relationship with Daudet's ex-wife led to a duel in which Charcot was wounded. If I was making this stuff up, I might stand accused of attempting a parody of French passions, but it seems this is how France rolled during La Belle Epoque. Leaving his new and old daughters in the care of his new in-laws, Jean-Baptiste, Marguerite and the Pourquoi Pas departed Le Havre on the 15th of August 1908 with a crew of 30, 
eight of these being veterans of Charcot's previous Antarctic expedition, including the geologist Gordon. New to Antarctic voyaging were botanist Gain, later director of the National Meteorological Institute, and the zoologist Liu Vier, later director-in-chief of the Institute of Science. Jaco really seems to have attracted a team of high-power officers and scientists, even if their subsequent achievements are considered in isolation. The expedition sailed with the patronage of the Académie des Sciences, the Musée des Natural History, the Institute of Oceanography, and the Bureau des Longitudes. Marguerite Charcot sailed with the Pourquoi Pas on the transit to Rio de Janeiro and on to Buenos Aires, where Jean-Baptiste was distressed to see the Francais aground on a sandbar in the River Plate, and from there on to Punta Arenas before returning to France as the expedition headed further south. On the 16th of December, the Pourquoi Pas sailed for the South Shetlands, reaching Smith Island on the 22nd, and from there steering southwest for Deception Island. The harbour at Deception Island was, by this time, home base to a large number of Norwegian and Chilean whaling vessels. Chaser boats, towing Rockwell carcasses, greeted the Pourquoi Pas at the entrance to the caldera, and flensing teams processed more unlucky cetaceans ashore. Whale skeletons littered the beach, and oil rendering operations dominated the olfactory landscape. The Norwegians made the French expedition welcome, using English as the common language. Charcot employed his medical experience to save a Norwegian sailor from a gangrenous death by performing an amputation, and treated one of the whalers' wives, adding to his already substantial cachet among the whalers, who used Charcot's charts of the Antarctic Peninsula in their forays further south. The Pourquoi Pas departed Deception Island on Christmas Day, reaching Booth Island on the 29th of December. Charcot found his former winter quarters in almost exactly the state he'd left it in 1904. On New Year's Day 1909, Port Quapa came to a well-situated natural harbour on the shores of Peatman Island, which Charcot named Port Circumcision, which I will leave to better linguists than I to decipher. Every resource I turn to translates circumcision as meaning circumcision. What Charcot planned as a brief reconnaissance aboard the ship's motorised launch turned into a three-day ordeal that nearly cost Charcot, Gordon, and Ensign Godfroy their lives. Sighting clear waters where the previous expedition struggled in young sea ice, Charcot steered the boat for Cape Tuxen on the Graham Land coast, surveying and examining possible paths further south. Attempting to return to the ship, they found increasingly dense pack blocking their path, and snow began to fall. Pushing the motor launch into any promising lead, they made little headway as each potential path closed up before them. The light snow turned to sleet. Godfroy used a spade to try to lever open gaps in the ice, through which to transit between leads, but cold numbed his hands and he lost his grip on the handle, watching the spade sink with a dejected air, what little progress it helped them make being further reduced. The boat's motor gave out. Progress ceased. With no shelter, no spare clothing and only a chocolate bar and some biscuits to split between the three of them, the soaked sailors went ashore and huddled to conserve the little warmth they generated. For three days and nights the ice prevented their relaunching the launch, but, during a period of calm, which brought on a dense fog, they heard the Pourquoi Pas siren. The ship, searching for them through the mist, 
came to their desperate cries and collected the unlucky but lucky party. Warmed and well fed, Shako's next unpleasant moment came just a day after his rescue, when the ship went aground on a submerged rock, quite close to where the Francais went aground toward the end of their previous expedition. The weight of the anchors and their chains in the bow held the ship firmly aground on the reef. Shako ordered all weight moved aft or displaced to the boats, and on the next high tide put the engine astern in an attempt to refloat the Pourquoi Pas. The first attempt didn't work, but the following high tide, the ship, with a tremendous grinding of steel on stone and a flotilla of torn up wood floating alongside, ground its way backwards to freedom and uncertainty. A ship aground can't go anywhere, but it also can't sink. A ship afloat but hold can sink until you can't even see the top bits and have nowhere left to stand to keep you distinct from the marine life. Fortunately, Galthier's reinforced design held together. Water only began flooding the forward compartments sometime after the accident and at a pace the automatic pumps could readily keep ahead of. The Pourquoi Park returned to port circumcision for what repairs could be effected without a dry dock. Charcot, little knowing how bad the damage actually was, felt confident the Pourquoi Park remained sound after the drama and sailed south in the second half of January 1909, crossing the circle and charting the 70-mile-long coast of Adelaide Island, previously thought a much smaller landmass. At the southern end of Adelaide Island, they charted a large embayment and its attendant smaller islands, naming the area Marguerite Bay after Charcot's wife. One of the islands they charted received the name Jenny Island after first mate Bongrain's wife. A landing party climbed to 1,500 feet and sighted coast disappearing into the distance. This stretch of coast received the name Valier's Land after the French Prime Minister at the time. Charcot hoped to moor the ship in the Maitha Strait at the southern end of Adelaide Island, but threatening ice conditions changed his mind. The ship returned to the better sheltered port circumcision to begin preparations for the winter at the end of January. The far broader scope of the scientific program of the second French expedition under Charcot is evident in that it took a month to offload, install and calibrate all of the scientific instruments. In the four electrically lit huts built ashore, were mounted magnetic, seismographic, tidal and meteorological instruments. Canvas awnings over the ship's decks provided additional sheltered workspaces, and three steel hawsers drawn strategically across aspects of the embayment provided an improvement over the ice shielding used to protect the Francais. Unseasonably warm February and March conditions allowed the crew to grow onions and watercress in the wardroom. Where in the earlier expedition, Charcot took his crew a picnicking to break the routine. This time, he organised a Mardi Gras celebration, as his nod to whimsical mood boosting. On the 23rd of February, the crew dressed in as fancy a manner as they could each achieve, and paraded on the shore. An outlandish spectacle with no audience, but good for morale, by all reports. March saw the Pourquoi Pas knocked around on its moorings by a strong swell, and icebergs visited Port Circumcision testing the steel horses but not breaking through. April brought the first big storms and heavy snows. Temperatures dropped sufficient that Charcot ordered the burst be heated, having held off to that point in order to save coal. As the darkness grew deeper, so did the snow. Maintaining access to the huts became a major occupation. 
Paths between the ship and the shore facilities were kept accessible as deep trenches in the snowdrifts, making navigation easy but adding to the crew's sense of being hemmed in by the winter. Falling temperatures and looming darkness sapped morale. Someone instituted a sports club, establishing a track on the shore slope. Crew competed in skiing and sledging events, exhausting themselves but revelling in the challenge and the break-in routine. Charcot instituted courses taught by the resident experts. Off-duty crew could learn navigation from the ship's officers and first aid from the zoologist. Grammar, mathematics, English and geography rounded out the curriculum. Le Matin, enthusiastic sponsor of Charcot's earlier expedition south, provided back copies of their daily newspaper, which Charcot released in date order. Out of date, but a much appreciated source of diversion. As with the Francais, the Pourquoi Park carried a well-stocked library and readings of The Typist's Lover by Sub-Lieutenant Jules Ruche, given as the novel took shape through the winter months, proved the favourite entertainment. A June storm saw an iceberg breach the hawser barrier and badly damaged the ship's rudder, which the crew shipped, instituting temporary repairs to serviceability with the materials and tools to hand. On the 18th of September, a survey party left the ship for Graham Land, but Jacot couldn't travel with them. He experienced a form of anemia, a shortage of haemoglobin in the blood. Short on the necessary oxygen-carrying protein, Jacot was left gasping and weak physically, and angry and chagrined emotionally, gutted to be so obviously invalided. His legs became swollen. Does that sound like scurvy to you? It sounds like scurvy to me. He did respond well to an increase in fresh seal meat in his diet, and while I'm unhappy at the thought that at this late date in Antarctic history someone as competent as Charcot would allow anyone in his care, let alone himself, contract scurvy, that's what it looks like at this end of the historical telescope. Three motor sledges were taken south aboard the Pourquoi but the ice conditions encountered at the French winter quarters precluded their use. All surveying forays involved man-hauling, and Charcot was in no state for the strain involved in harnessing up and pulling his share. The expedition he missed didn't travel far. After 16 miles, their progress was halted by a spectacular but impassable cul-de-sac they named the Amphitheatre of Avalanches, which sounds amazing in English and must take on epic linguistic proportions in French. The crew began reloading the ship at the end of October. They sailed north on the 25th of November, reaching Deception Island on the 27th. In addition to bunkering coal to their coal-hungry ship's bunkers, the Norwegians passed on news of Shackleton's furthest south and of Peary's claim on the North Pole. A Norwegian diver dressed in and made a survey of the Pourquoi-Pas undersides, advising that the French withdraw, stating that another blow to the bow would send the ship to the bottom. Jaco swore the Norwegians to silence. He claimed he felt sure his crew would back his decision to head south once more, which makes his request for secrecy seem superfluous. I lost some of my substantial respect for Charcot when I first read that he kept information regarding the state of the ship's keel from his officers and men, but in good faith or not, the Pourquoi Pas sailed south again on the 7th of January 1910. On the 10th of January, Charcot, aloft in the crow's nest, thought he could see mountain peaks beyond Alexander Island. First mate Borgrain confirmed the sighting. Unknown land lay at 70 degrees south, 76 degrees west, 
and on the 11th of January, Charcot made a territorial claim over it on the behalf of France, naming the sighted land Charcot Land for Charcot's father. Attempts to reach the coast of Charcot Land and effect a landing saw sails hoisted and the engine run hard, but pack ice blocked their path. The crew tried to break the ice with poles and the ship was urged into the pack, but with his secret knowledge of the state of the keel beneath the bow, Charcot didn't try to press his luck further than heading south already had, and soon ordered they pull the pin on the endeavour. Had they reached Charcot Land, they could have identified it as an island, but that revelation lay in store for a future expedition. The French sailed west, tracking the edge of the pack to 124 degrees west, sighting Peter the first land for the first time since Bellingshausen, 90 years before them. Sailing north for South America, they reached Punta Arenas on the 11th of February, 1910. Major repairs to the bow and rudder were made in dry dock in Montevideo, and the ship received a scrub down and a paint up in the Azores, in preparation for their triumphant return to France. On the 4th of June, the Pourquoi Pass sailed up the Seine to Rouen, their progress met by cheering crowds as they passed each village on their way upstream. The expedition surveyed 1,250 miles of coastline, some of it never seen before. 28 volumes of reports, published over the course of a decade and illustrated with 3,000 photographs, arose from the scientific program. Jean-Baptiste Chacot received plaudits from explorers and scientifics alike, his achievements going unsurpassed for many years. His efforts gave shape to the whole of the western side of the Antarctic Peninsula, and the charts generated by his voyages remained in use for a quarter of a century. Charcot commanded a Royal Navy Q-boat during the First World War. Q-boats performed the unenviable task of attracting attacks by submarines. These converted merchant ships sailed waters known to be frequented by subs, and, when attacked, revealed their heavy armament to try to destroy the submarine before the submarine sunk them. Charcot received the Distinguished Service Cross for his courageous conduct in this role. The Pourquoi Pass spent several years as a training vessel in the French Navy, but returned to exploration under Charcot's leadership in 1918, making several journeys into the Arctic north of the Atlantic. In 1928, Charcot sailed the Pourquoi Pas north, spoiler alert, in search of the French seaplane aboard which Roald Amundsen disappeared which itself was searching for any sign of Umberto Nobile's airship, overdue in its attempt to overfly the North Pole. Charcot's dash to get clear of his father's substantial shadow came to an end on the 15th of September 1936, when the Pourquoi Pas found it in a gale off the coast of Iceland, and the commander, along with 23 of the 44-strong crew, drowned. All but one of the survivors of the wreck perished on shore before rescue arrived. The one survivor's last recollection of his commander was Charcot releasing the ship's mascot, a seagull, from its cage as the ship went down. But for his shifty move at the apt site of Deception Island, hiding the state of the ship from his crew, I don't find much to criticise in Charcot, and figure his dash to find his own sunlight a huge success. First guest to make a return appearance to Ice Coffee... Sue Halliwell and I sat down to talk about her experiences in the Arctic and tracking down artefacts and memorials associated with the heroic age during her travels. Take care and appreciate your coffee.
Sue Halliwell. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. And since we last spoke, you've done another trip. Pardon me, another trip to the Arctic. What what calls you north? Working with Polar Bears International. They. This will be my third uh, trip back. When I returned last year, they said as long as I'm prepared to keep coming, they'd love to keep having me return. So. Primarily, it's to do with helping logist with the logistics team, um, and to be there as their uh, medical support. Um, they do have the Climate Alliance students coming up, the representatives from each of the zoos throughout the world that have polar bears at their zoos, doing a program with Polar Bears International. Um, they're skyping the other students. They've got briefs that they have to investigate and uh, all of their studies actually culminate up in Churchill at um, the sort of sub-peak of the bear season. Um, they do actually get to see the bears out on the tundra in their own natural environment as well as the, the animals um, of the tundra. They learn about climate change and they can see it firsthand, um, just the effects from one year they come up as a Climate Alliance student, the next year they come up as a field ambassador. So having done the studies, um, do a five minute short video on what they're going to do back at their zoo to inform the general public as well as their team members um, about climate change and about the effects on the polar bears because of climate change and what they're going to do um, to it impart that knowledge with the general public to come through uh, and how they can start sort of programs, you know, school programs for children as well, um, as well as in the general community. The, the next year, some of the students are invited back to be field ambassadors. Um, they spend two weeks up in Churchill um, going out on the tundra buggies with Frontiers North, a, a tourist organisation. Um, and they stand up in the buses and give a, dem a um, presentation, presentation <laughs> about yeah about the polar bears, about climate change and and the environment, and um, field any questions that the general public have you know while they're actually out on the tundra. You'll have to excuse my Arctic ignorance. Where where's Churchill? Churchill, sorry, is at the. Edge of Hudson Bay, um, yeah. So it's it's in Manitoba, which is one of the states in Canada that's towards the middle of Canada, um, up as far north as you can go um, on Hudson Bay, uh, on the, the the base of Hudson Bay. Um, so it's like Melbourne, but upside down, Port <laughs> <laughs> with Port Phillip Bay. So you still do have communities that are very um, isolated further up Hudson Bay, but they aren't they aren't um, populated by the general public. They're you know the Inuit people are the main um, you know people who live in those really outreach areas and research scientists. And what sort of conditions are you working in in the northern summer? There are, are you. Still surrounded by snow at that point. It's it's the winter. It, sorry, you're up there yeah, in the winter. Yep, it's fall, um, or you know, they're autumn. 
going into winter. So when you get up there, um, it can still be around about 7 to 11 degrees in October, uh, but very quickly, it's a very dry uh, climate, dry and cool climate. You don't have rain. It, you just have wind and um, snow. So, you know, blizzards are, are what we're used to. And um, um, one day in October, early October, you'll have snowfall and by afternoon it's all gone because the wind's blown it all away. The next night the snow will fall again and you'll wake up to this beautiful, you know, snow-covered town and uh, by afternoon it's back to dust. <laughs> so I think now... I've from my first year, it was the second week of October, we had snow consistently. Then last year, we didn't have snow consistently until the end of October that, that stayed for the 24 hours and built up. The The first year that I went down, 2014, the bay froze over by the 7th of November. I left last year, 2015, um, to come back to Winnipeg on the 17th of November and the bay had only just frozen over properly that week. So just from the two years that I've been up there, the season seems to have sort of pushed itself a week and a half forward into the calendar. And uh, for the bears, that's a bit distressing because they're waiting. You know, we had more bear sightings in town uh, because of the fact that the ice hasn't frozen over. Um, they're, they're starving, they're looking for food and the Manitoba Protection Society are, are um, circulating around town uh, and the outskirts of town 24-7 anyway but they have to put on more um, more patrols because of the fact that there's more bears last year within the city or the town limits um, and surrounding area than what they had been previously. That <coughs> Manitoba Protection Society, Society, their role is protecting the community yes. from bears. Yes, that's it. Freaky. It is. They have these huge big trucks with um, cranes on the back. That The cranes are there specifically to um, deploy traps for the bears uh, at specific places around the outskirts of town, the graveyard being one of the most popular for the bears. Don't ask me why. But um, they'll set up these traps on the shores, further out of town, um, down the railway lines, closer to the um, recycling facility. And the, the, the traps themselves, they do hang a piece of meat in them um, to attract the bear to the trap and um, take it to the holding facility which is on the outskirts of town. Um, in, at the holding facility, there's provision for 30 bears. They have their own um, stall, separate from every other bear, so that there's no communication between the bears. Um, there's no luxuries. There's, no, uh, there's water, but there's no food. And they're specifically held there, um, not fed, not interacted with as a deterrent because polar bears are sort of similar to dogs. You know, they have to be trained certain behaviours and rewarded or not, you know, but there's no rewards. It's just they're trained to, if you come to town, you're going to get locked away for a month and um, darted. Um, they'll move the bear 
awake into the holding facility because they can do that with the specific trap and the way it's um, situated and, and the holding facility is built. But to then transport the bear out to the tundra by helicopter, it's necessary to sedate the bear and um, put them onto a pallet with a net and they can then fly or helicopter the bear out to the tundra way, way away out at Wapusk um, National Park where the ice is and you know they've saved that bear all of that energy getting from town out to their sea, sea ice edge so um, that's the idea they'll put a little um, tag on the bear's ear so that if that particular bear does come back to to town um, they know that it's a repeat offender um, they get they give them another color tag next time and um, they keep them, not for longer, but they try to take them further out, even still, so that, um, um, you know, the bear then has got in its mind that really being in town is not the place to be. The food's here, you know, they get it close to the bear's food source, and um, hopefully the bear will understand that they can bypass town and get straight to the food, you know, <laughs> instead of having this big hiccup in between. <coughs> <coughs> in the series I've made a great deal about the the nature of Antarctic wildlife being as easy to approach as it is largely because there are no terrestrial predators do you see much wildlife other than bears in the Arctic or, mm -hmm. or does that does the presence of those predators make it harder to spot a seal or a, a caribou I, ha I haven't seen any seals at all because, you know, the sea ice edge is that far out and we actually wrap up uh, Polar Bear International's operations at, on the 20th of November. The town actually shuts down to tourism. The bars close. We have a, a particular night where we drink the bar dry and uh, that's good fun. But, um, you know... Once the bears have actually gone through town and out on the tundra, you know, the only people that actually see any of um, their activity are research scientists. We, um, you know, we don't have anything to do with that. It's logistics um, support. Right. Uh, there are a lot of other animals that do come into town that have come off the tundra. There's the red fox that actually, there, there are actually red fox um, dens near the port at, um, at Churchill. Um, but you've got the Arctic fox that'll be out on the tundra, uh, the Arctic hare, um, caribou, moose may come into town and they're not the nicest type of people, not the nicest type of animal to ever come across, you know. They really, um, yeah, they're to be avoided at all costs, just like the polar bears. You know, they're not happy. Um, and the, the the bird life. There's a little wild chicken called um, ptarmigan that are good eating, but they look they look like a bantam chicken, a little chicken that's wearing fluffy pajamas. You know, they're really cute little characters, and they dart about and and um, they like to hide in the in the little bushes, you know, out on the tundra. And sparrows, um, snowy owls. Uh, there's, they're sort of similar to our um, um, peregrine falcons. They come back to certain areas every year 
and uh, have a partner as well for life. Um, so getting to see a snowy owl is really quite special and to see them in flight is even even better. Um, there's a lot of ducks up there or geese, Canadian geese that uh, frequent the ponds but as soon as it starts getting cooler they move south. What's driving the system? What's supporting those large herbivores? The, the tundra itself, um, there's mosses out. The tundra itself is this spongy, grassy plain, um, but it's not grass, it's just spongy, mossy plain um, that's made up of mosses, little berry bushes, um, woody sort of bushes that, that have what look like a woody rose. Um, that the Inuit used to make tea with. So um, lots of little tiny small plants and mosses all intergrown inter um, to make this spongy surface to walk across. There's a few flag trees. There's other trees there that I'm, I've still to learn their names <laughs> out there. But nothing grows very tall at all because... Because of the climate, it's like our alpine region up in the mountains, but it's sea level. So the trees themselves are stunted. They're, because of the permafrost, um, the ground below six feet is completely frozen. The roots of the trees can't penetrate very far. So um, they run their, the trees actually run their roots and uh, put up new trunks. So you might think that that's a... That's a a little forest happening but it's actually only one tree in that little clutch and a couple of small bushes you know beside it um so you know the caribou depend on the depend on the the mosses and the little berry bushes and the other tiny low-lying um vegetation out on the tundra it's a complete contrast to what we've discussed in the past with the other end of the earth just it couldn't be more different for the f <clears throat> for the fact while, while still being at high latitudes and mm. <clears throat> what's your accommodation in Churchill what what sort of facilities are available mm. because in the Churchill was actually um, established for the fur trade way back in the 1800s um, so there was two forts and uh, the Hudson Bay Company actually were in charge of um, running these forts. They had a military backup because you've got the Inuit and uh, the Cree and the Dene, local um, Indians, um, who didn't like each other uh, but still approached the forts. Um, one fort was made, the Fort of Prince William was made first, and uh, then across the, the Churchill River, um, where Churchill's actually situated now, uh, Cape Mary Fort was um, was built, and that was really munitions and a few guns. But uh, the people who actually made the forts weren't very clever in the fact that um, the military personnel perished, so just left behind the carpenters and the cooks and, and a, a few of the commanders, but they weren't really savvy on how to build forts. Um, it took 40 years to build 
Kate Prince William, uh, Prince William Fort, sorry, and um, um, they had the local Inuit population and Korean Dene helping, and so it took a long time to actually get a viable building that stayed up <laughs> in place, and um, um, the English-French War happened. The French came, blew the fort up, and uh, um, the English were actually taken back on the French ship um, and take, given, sort of cast out on a, on a little ship um, and somehow made it back to England. Um, but England said, no, you've got to get back there because we need the fur trade still happening. So, you know, of course, more supplies, more ships came. Because it's such a harsh environment, um, people did actually exist as, as trappers themselves. They didn't, as time evolved, they didn't rely on the Indians. They just relied on the general population that was happy to, to do trapping and live there. Um, and because of the harsh conditions, the price of getting food, the Commonwealth were the ones that would actually help with accommodation. And that sort of, that has continued. That... Um, during the Second World War, the American army were up in Churchill and they were doing weather testing with weather balloons that looked like missiles, you know, sort of a bit dodgy, that actually the operations were moved down here to Woomera. So the weather balloon um, story sort of went out the window pretty quick. So the buildings that were left behind um, weren't necessarily good for you and I to habitat. They're okay for army servicemen, you know, in billeted in barracks. So they those buildings are still in use but for industrial purposes, um, but only a few of them, not a lot of them. A lot were actually dissembled and made into other housing um, that has now been replaced by community housing um, through the housing commission that the government, you know, runs. You have four double-storey units together um, or six double-storey units together and the local population rent though that accommodation from the Housing Commission for 2000 a month and their gas, electricity and water supply is um, included in that 2000 So we actually, Polar Bears International, have a headquarters, that a building that they've actually purchased or a, a sponsor actually purchased and gave to them and that was $35,000 for a house with a single story house with a, a garage and four bedrooms. So we hire two units for the logistics team and a few of the um, field ambassadors and another unit for the scientists that come and go uh, throughout the season. And how are you getting to and from Churchill? The only way to get to Churchill is by train or by plane. The, there's no road transport because of the, the unstableness of the, the tundra, because of the fact that, of the permafrost. Um, the train service even can be disrupted because the train is derailed a lot. Um, there used to be service stations uh, along the railway, but with 
um, the railway line becoming privatised, um, you know, the, the workers that worked at those service stations um, were disbanded. Yeah, so getting up there by train or getting goods brought up by train, there's Garwin, uh, the local suppliers, um, there's, a, there's a few other transport companies that hook their carriages onto the Garwin um, engine, but um, yeah, mainly Garwin, uh, the people that we, we service, uh, are served by and have our goods brought up. Yeah. So they, they have um, freezer storage as well as um, stock can come up and uh, um, passenger trains. In the time since we first met 10 years ago, when Antarctica was your first and only foray outside of Australia, you've travelled quite widely. Mm. And in those travels have set, set yourself goals in Antarct tracing Antarctic history through the, the monuments and places that people turn to after their Antarctic experiences. Can you tell us mm. about some of those, please? Mm, okay, well, last year I went to England um, to walk across England, do the Wainwright Walk. My sister and her husband said to me, would you like to come for a walk? And I thought that they just meant around their block and I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I went to put my runners on. They said, no, 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 we're going overseas. And um, I said, okay, so where's the walk? England. And I thought, okay, well, look, do you mind if while we're there, you know, because the Wainwright Walk is just sort of underneath Hadrian's Wall and Scotland's there in Edinburgh and Dundee and the discoveries at Dundee. And uh, we had to come south after we've done our walk. Um, so can we go through Cambridge and have a look at the Scott Polar Institute? And they said yes to that one, big tick. And I said, well, look, I actually like to nick across to... Ireland and um, down to the Ring of Kerry to Anniskell and see Tom Crane's pub and they said well you can do that on your own because we've been to Ireland and I thought oh, what you know they don't want to come and see Tom Crane's pub <laughs> I, I, you know I just I just couldn't believe that they weren't they were fine with seeing the discovery and coming to the scholar um Pollard, Scott Polar Institute but they didn't want to go to a pub <laughs> so anyway um yeah, so going over to Ireland was a real eye-opener because um, not only did Tom Crean from Ireland, you know, come from Ireland and be a part of um, Antarctic expeditions, there's so many Irishmen who have gone down you know, to, to the Antarctic and um, there's, there's commemorations to them in churches, busts in particular towns some brothers a, a pair of brothers went down to the Antarctic and you know to go through town and sort of go eyes left here's a bust and look what it's you know commemorating uh, you know it was a real eye-opener and the my hosts who um, escorted me around the, the south of, of Ireland became caught with the fever as well you know they didn't realize you know so much more history um 
was all, you know, they had its roots in Ireland um, to do with such amazing feats. Did you get to see the James Caird? Yes. Yeah. The James Caird is, is sitting out in the, in the um, foreyard of the Scott Polo Institute. Yeah. So my sister had to dutifully take my photo while I posed on it, <laughs> or posed next to it. Is it as small as it appears in the in the photographs? Well, it, it's really amazing. I think it's it's quite big. You know, to think of a life raft. Um, yes, you know, when you go on the Spirit of Tasmania over to Hobart and you see the size of the life rafts, you know, they're really quite big. Well, it was, you know, it was in comparison to that size, um, but it just didn't have the you know the the metal gutsy structure you know that the um, life rafts of today had. It was, you know, made out of wood. But it was quite big. But to think of the seas that they had to encounter in a life raft like that, you know, those guys had some intestinal fortitude. They really did. I mean, they had no choice. But (laughs) so it was either get in the life raft and let's go, otherwise we're going to perish here anyway. Um, But... You know, to 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 know, you know the the magnitude of the Southern Ocean and them actually, you know, sailing through it in a life raft. You know that that would have been a story to tell your grandchildren really slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the cats have given away that we're not really in Antarctica. Mm. But thank you for your time. Can I make you a coffee? My pleasure. Love one. <laughs>